You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. And today we go into a series uh, where we're just looking at relationships and, and really not just kind of uh, in marriage, but in everything. And if you think about it, there's probably not a more important thing than relationships. If you think of one thing, think about this, the, the, the level of where your marriage is at determines how much peace and joy you have in your life. The level of the relationship with your children, I have one of my, my youngest who's an awesome young man, Caleb Connell, who will hate that I'm mentioning him, but he is a legend and I love him so much. But the reality is that the relationship that I have with him while he's growing up will have an effect on the relationship that we have together when he's a man and he's older and how much joy and favour and blessing I receive will actually be linked to our relationship. And then, of course, in business, it's a known fact that, you know, we often say it's not what you know, but who you know. And some people get upset by that, but it's actually a kingdom principle because the kingdom is built on relationship. And so there's probably no greater factor that affects our lives more than how we do relationship. You know, like I said, even with our parents, the relationship we have with our parents affects us. I... uh, uh, we, we do uh, really freedom stuff. Jackie and I feel called to bring freedom all over the world. It's our mandate. It's why I'm on the planet. And, and you know, I would say 90% of people that we're helping in some kind of freedom area, you'll go back to issues with either mum or especially dad. Uh, I remember uh, it was probably, I don't know, about seven years ago and Uh, Well, the relationship with my dad is we have a pretty good relationship, but there'd be certain things that would happen that he could just say to me that were a bit kind of, you know, I would never say them to my children and and they would kind of trigger stuff within me. And, you know, uh, and and I would find myself totally fine connecting with him, hanging out, laughing. And he would say one of these things and all of a sudden there was a trigger that I'd start getting upset, almost even starting to cry. And I think to myself, man, what, I'm a 35-year-old man. And how could he say one thing that is a trigger? And I, I read this book. And if, if you feel like you've got some issues with your parents, it's a great book to read. It's called Spiritual Slavery to Spiritual Sonship by a man called Jack Frost. It's an amazing book. It'll mess you up a bit in a good way. And I was reading this book and, and, and it was, it was messing me up and And what I realised while reading is the reason these triggers would come forward is because my parents got divorced when I was young, but my dad modelled drug addiction to me my whole life. He he, he modelled being addicted and excessive alcohol. And at 13, I started to take drugs and that turned into injecting and having drug-induced psychosis, being mentally ill. And really, a drug addict from 13 to 23 get radically saved at 23, but then struggle with other things as a Christian. And I realised that what these triggers were is that I still blamed my dad, that he was the reason that I had to fight all these particular things. And when reading this book, I felt God speak to me. And it was back a while ago, we didn't have a lot of money. And I felt him say that I want you to to get a card, a blank card, and I want you to uh, get a card for your mother, your, your father, your father-in-law, your mother and your mother-in-law. 
And I want you to put $1,000 in each card. Who knows it's the Holy Spirit when you give $1,000 to your mother-in-law? Or it could actually be the devil. But anyway, <laughs> I actually love my mother-in-law. And, and so God told me to get this card and to write on one side of the card, I would honour my dad, then my mum, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. And then I asked Jackie if she would do the same in each of the card on the other side, her father-in-law, mother, et cetera, et cetera. And I knew that really God was doing this because it was when I got to writing about my dad. The first three were easy. And sometimes I think, God, you could have saved me $3,000 and we could have just done the card for my dad. But anyway, they all got blessed on the way. And so I'm writing for my dad. And when I come to had to honour him, I, I, anger started. I thought, what, what am I going to, hey, thanks for making me a drug addict. Thanks for messing up my life. And as I started to meditate of this relationship in my life, God started to take me back to the fact that my dad's dad was a monster. He was a very, very bad man, very violent. He abused my dad. He abused his mum in front of my dad and has a horrific childhood. And his dad, my grandfather, was an abusive alcoholic. And I started to think about that when my mum left my dad because my dad was drinking too much, how it broke his heart. He was only probably a 22-year-old man, but he had never been shown how to be a man. And it broke his heart that my mum left. And I started to think about the fact of my, all of my dad's friends were similar to my dad. They all suffered either alcoholism or drug abuse. And, and most of them had divorced from their wives. And I started to think about each one of my dad's friends, the Holy Spirit was showing me, that all of his friends were in the same boat as him, but Although they had children, their children were never around. And God started to show me that even though my dad had so much going on, that since I was a five-year-old little boy until I was too old, every single Friday night, bar about two Friday nights the whole time, my dad would pick me up at 5pm on a Friday. And yes, he would take me to some places where kids shouldn't go. But it was a lot of fun, okay, because there, there were no, it wasn't good for my future, but, but I could do whatever I wanted. Anyway, but he would pick me up every Friday night and he'd bring my sister and I back home on a Saturday night at five o'clock. And I wrote in that card as I honoured him, Dad, with all of the stuff that was going on in your life, it would have been so easy to just act as if you didn't have children. But I was a little boy that could count on the fact that Dad would be at his house every Friday night at five o'clock. And I, and I remember weeping as I wrote that card. I sent it to my father who also began to weep. And you know what? From that moment, our relationship completely changed. Since that moment, he's found Jesus and gave his life to Jesus. In, in this church, while he was visiting us from Australia, his knee was healed of some major knee damage. But more than that, our relationship is so much better. He still says some things that I would never say to my children, but they're no longer a trigger because I dealt with the relationship in my life. Now my future is better. Life is better. And it's so often when it comes to relationships. I want to look, you know, and the reality is how we deal with relationships actually exposes who we are. You know the people that say, well, I fully love God but not the church. Well, that's a cop-out. So what you're saying is you love an invisible, fluffy, loving God. We all do. But what brings sparks is when we actually get in community of other believers that also love God but have brokenness 
The, the Bible says iron sharpens iron. That means there's sparks. But the Bible also says that they will know you by the love that you have for each other. And the real, what relationship does is it actually shows what's really in our hearts. Genesis 9 verse 18 to 29. It's the, the scripture I want to talk about today. It says, and it's a story of Noah. And if you don't know, Noah has, in a sense, there was the massive flood. God told him to build a boat. It had never rained before. He builds the boat. Him and his three sons and their three wives and Noah's wife hop on the boat. The earth is flooded. Everyone's killed except them. And then we find ourselves here. It says, The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Shepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over all of the earth. The reality is every person in this room is a descendant of one of these three men. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk, and he lay uncovered or naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Shepheth, they took a garment, they laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward, covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, which is Ham's son, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Shepheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. See, what I want to show you in this story is these three sons are never mentioned in the rest of the Bible except for this particular story. Uh, but even when they hop on the boat, it doesn't mention their names. It just says his three sons hopped on the boat. And it does mention their names again after this story, but it just talks about their descendants. Ham had this and blah, 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 and shit, that kind of thing, right? But this is the only actual story. It's the only information we have about these three men. And if you will, this story, if you think about it, it's a relational story, yes? It is a story about how three sons related to someone that was important in their life. Two sons related in one particular way and one in a very different manner. And so the whole thing really is a relational story, but I want you to watch this. It is Japheth, his name. Remember, the only thing we know about him is how he dealt with his father in this particular moment, but his name means enlarged. See, when you deal the right way with relationships, your life will be enlarged. Things will only get bigger and better and greater because he approached relationships in the right manner. Therefore, his life was enlarged. Uh, Shem, his name, it means renown or name. In other words, his name will be known. And again, because Shem, remember, the only thing we know about him is how he dealt with his dad relationally. And because he dealt with his dad in this good relational matter, he became renowned and his name was known all over the world. But then we look at Ham who dealt with this very different. And Ham's name means hot. And it's kind of not in the good way that you want to be known as hot. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's hot. And Ham, because these three brothers went all over the world, he went to Egypt first. And really it represents him being in the Middle Eastern hot sun. And I think about hot, okay? I want to be hot when I'm on a vacation, but I don't want to be hot all the time. 
I don't want to be hot when I'm working because when I'm working, the work I'm doing is harder because of the heat and I'm now hot and I'm sweating more than I should be. And to me, remember, the only thing we know about this boy is how he handled a relational issue. And I believe what it's showing us is if you don't learn to do relationship properly, life will become harder than it's actually meant to be. You'll need to sweat more than you actually should need to sweat to get to where you're going. He also deliberately curses the son that comes from him. Again, what it shows is that if you don't get this relational part of your life right, everything that comes from you cannot be blessed. And I want to show you three things that these three, that the two sons did in, in this relation that we can put into our daily lives and all of our relationships. The first one is honour. See, well, one son, he dishonoured. One son saw his father's nakedness and he went and told everyone about his father's weakness and ugliness. But two sons, they wouldn't even look at the nakedness. They walk in backwards with a, a blanket and they walk in and they cover their father because they chose to honour their father. See, we don't honour because of behaviour, we honour because of position and title. You don't honour your wife because she's acting in the right way, you honour her because she's your wife. You don't honour your husband because he's doing everything right, you honour him because he's your husband. We honour our leaders, we honour each other. You know, the, 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 uh, I remember a while ago, uh, Pastor Mike Connell came and I'm going to share a, a really vulnerable story in just a moment, very raw. But, but Pastor Mike Connell came, and for those that don't know, he moves powerfully in deliverance and freedom and healing, and that's what I feel called to do. And, and so maybe four months before he came, I heard that he would be at then C3 Now Awaken for three, to three weeks. And I felt God tell me to not preach away anywhere for those three weeks, but just be here for every meeting that Mike Connell would be in. And just so you know, for me, the way that I earn my income, the main way, the majority of our income comes from me being away preaching, at, not here, but at other churches all over the world. And so to take three weeks off, for me, it meant no major income for three weeks in a row, but I felt God tell us to do it. And then we asked the church, if would we be able to have the honour of being their drivers? We'll pick them up, we'll drive them wherever they need to be, and we drove them. And, and every time we picked them up, we found out what their favourite coffee was, and we'd go to Starbucks you know, early enough to make sure their drinks were still hot. And whenever we got in the car with them, we honoured this couple, Jackie and I, and, and asked them questions about their lives and how would they get to this place where they're 70 plus years old, but moving in such power, in freedom and healing and deliverance and ministry, not just to churches, but to apostolic leaders. And then after about four days of just being around this couple, I was at our Balboa campus and I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. And He told me to give them, for, for me, an obscene amount of money. And I'm like, but God, we've just taken three weeks off work. And the gas that it's costing me driving them all over the city. And now you want me to take this obscene amount of money and bless them. But I knew that God was speaking to me. because, see, And the reason we wanted to do it is because when I looked at their life, I thought to myself, if, I end up being, if we end up being 70 years old and we're, we're as, as love with each other as they are, if we're moving in the power that they're moving in, if we have the influence that they've got, if their family is where, you know, I want to sow into that, that I will be like them. 70 years. But little confession, if I'd be honest with you, when God told me to sow this amount of money, every time Jackie and I sow a big amount of money, there's always got to be agreement. 
but secretly I was hoping that she would feel not to. Because then I could be the great man of God that wanted to sow into this amazing couple. But Lord, the woman you gave me, she didn't want to. And I remember going home and she was sitting on her bed reading. And I, I said, now, I, I felt like God spoke to me tonight that we're meant to give X amount to the Connells. And she just looked, she says, yeah, I feel that as well. I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. And you know, it was amazing because I was preaching the next weekend, one of the, the key churches in the C3 movement in New York City. And just a couple weeks after they'd left and, and I was there ministering and it was one of the most powerful weekends that I've ever experienced. The flow of miracles and healings that were just breaking out with such ease. This church paid me more money than I've ever been paid. And it was the same amount that I actually gave to, pass to Mike Connor, Mike and Joe Connor, the exact amount. And, and, and after ministering all day Sunday, we're at dinner after Sunday night and this amazing couple, they said to us, please, would you, would you change your flights? Would you stay for Tuesday? We need you to minister to our staff. And then Wednesday night, we've got our all-in night. Would you minister to them? And there was such a flow of blessing and favour and miracles. And, and I remember thinking to myself, man, what's the difference? Because I preached the same messages like a month or so before and it wasn't to this level. What was the difference? And I thought to myself, it was the way this church that I went to honoured me. And because I sowed honour, honour came to me. And the thing with honour is honour produces miracles. See, Jesus in his own hometown, because he was not honoured, was limited in the miracles that he was able to do. But, but let's not say honour releases miracles. I would say honour releases the best of that person. See, Jesus' hometown missed out because his best was whatever their need was. It was miracles. It was breakthrough. And because they didn't honour, they weren't able to release the best of who Jesus was. But when you don't honour your wife, you don't release the best of who she is. When you don't honour your husband, you're not releasing the best of who he is. When you don't honour your pastor or the person that's preaching, you don't release the best of who they are. There'll be moments in church where you're not honouring the person speaking the Word of God and you're missing out on the best while the person next to you is receiving so much more than you because honour releases, it releases, miracles are releases and in our relationships we need to honour. We need to honour leaders. We need to honour each other. We need to honour our wives, our children, our family members honour. See the thing with honour is you find out whether or not you really honour when an honourable person acts dishonourably. Let me just see. If I told you a story about a soldier and the only thing you knew about him was the story I'm about to tell. This is a made-up story. But let's say there's, I told you about a, a soldier who was at, in battle and combat and a live grenade was thrown and this particular soldier, he jumped on the grenade and was killed to save his battalion. You would honour that man. But of course you would. It's the only thing you know about him. It's not hard to honour that story. But for the two brothers 
that made a decision to honour their father, even while he was at his worst, drunk in the tent, naked, but they made a decision while their father was acting dishonourable that, you know what, I'm not even going to look at his dishonourable act because I'm going to remind myself that my father's the one that saved the whole world. My father's the one that heard from heaven and built a boat. My father's the one that said it wasn't going to rain and honour is really tested when the person that you're honouring doesn't act honourable. The second thing, and this is a big one, the second thing in relationships is we've got to allow process. We've got to allow process. See, two sons allowed their father to process where one didn't. Think about this. Noah was the hero. He, the process, it's about the valley season allowing people, relationships to go through a valley. See, valleys are messy. See, I don't want to give you a visual here, but to walk in and see your father naked in a tent, that's messy. Valleys are messy. Relationships are messy. And while one brother, younger brother, wouldn't allow dad to have a messy season. He, he was okay. He was cheering Dad on when he gave the word that we should build the boat and save the whole family. But think about this, right? Noah was a hero, but Noah had many relatives. Noah would have had aunties and uncles and cousins and nephews and, and people, I don't, people that had died on that day, his neighbours and people that he hung out with and people that he went to school with. And although his family was saved, he knew that the whole world besides his family had just been killed. And two sons were okay with the valley. Real relationship is I can cheer for you when you're on the mountain, but I'm also okay with your mess when you're in the valley. Because true Christianity is about valleys and mountains. I go through the valley, it's messy, it's what God's doing in my life. He's healing some stuff so that I can get to the mountain. But real friends are like, I'm with you in the valley and I'm also with you on the mountain. Maybe your spouse, they're going through a valley season, but that's okay. I'm okay with your mess because I know eventually you'll get back to the mountain again. And this particular point, I believe there's an incredible conflict with faith because we are in a supercharged faith environment and I love it. And we're in this faith environment where, where, where we're always encouraging each other. You're gonna get through it. You're gonna, and I never not wanna be in that environment because the opposite is bad. But here's, there's a, there's a tension with faith that it's all going to be good and also process of allowing someone to go through the valley. Because if you don't process properly, then you don't get to the mountain. And if I can be a little bit vulnerable, and I might even get the keyboarder to come now. See, because two brothers couldn't, two brothers were okay with dad going through the process, but one wasn't. And if I be a bit raw with you, the last three to four months have been the toughest, darkest three to four months that I've ever experienced in 20 years of Christianity. It was messy. It was about process. It was about going through the valley. 
I've shared this once before, but I want to take it to another level. I, when Pastor Mike Connor was here, the moment I got around him, it started to stir stuff up in me that I didn't even know was there. And, and it kind of messed me up because I'm here to, you know, serve him and, and, and just stuff was coming up. And this kept building and then I could clearly see for the first time in my life that what it was, was this issue of rejection, fear of abandonment. And there were so many other issues that I'd struggled with over 20 years and I kind of wondered why, but this was the first time I was seeing at the core that's causing me to struggle with some of these other areas is this issue of rejection and abandonment. And it comes to this crescendo where Pastor Mike Connell, we're at the staff retreat, there's probably, I don't know, 100 people there. I, I literally, I'm crying like for 35, 40 minutes. I'm talking ugly crying. I'm talking snot everywhere. Samuel was there, it was ugly. He had to get healing after it just because of how messed up I was. Now he's gone through a tough time. <laughs> and, and what God was doing, and I wept for probably 20, 25 minutes and then Pastor Mike Cunnell come and he just, he spoke and he said, spirit of rejection and fear of abandonment. God just continued to minister to me. And I said this last time at a PM service, but I wanna take it a bit further. At that moment, it was like literally like everything got worse. I kind of thought, cool, like he's dealt with it. And now it's done. But really what happened was he revealed something that had been there my whole life at the core that I was never able to see until that particular day. And then Pastor Mike Connell left. And two weeks later, we moved here because God told us to. It's been a four year journey of visas and most people won't understand what that's like. But, but it's, a, it's a very arduous, long battle, expensive, jumping through so many different hoops. Always have that thing of, well, they could ask us to leave at any moment. And so we went through this four year journey that was expensive and so many uh, hoops. And, and, and then we finally knew that it would get to the point where we could then apply for green card. That also meant I couldn't leave the country for a year and a half. So I've been landlocked for the last year and a half have invitations to preach all over the world, but I can't go to any of them because if I left, I wouldn't get back in. But it's all good because it's to this finish line. Eventually we'll get a green card and then it's all gonna be okay. And we paid all the money and we, and we got the medicals, which were like $2,000 each and, and went through all these other steps. And we get to the point that we're literally about to lodge the next day. We've got everything together, we're about to lodge. And the lawyer sees something in my criminal history that 23 years ago, I got caught with $50 worth of drugs. And because it was the wrong type of drug, when he saw that, he says, this thing puts you in a category for green card where you are inadmissible. In other words, the law says you can never have a green card. And here I am, I'm, I'm in this moment where I'm going through like abandonment and rejection and then comes the ultimate rejection. And I know this is not true, but it's like the country saying, we don't want you. And then a whole heap of other things with just natural relationships that happen over the next two, three months. And here's the tension with faith where everyone just says, oh, you'll be okay. God's gonna do it. God's gonna make it happen. It's gonna be okay. And sometimes, and I'm saying, we should never stop saying that. But sometimes what that does is creates a tension that doesn't allow people to process. Can make people feel like, well, well oh, okay, I just need to keep knowing it's all gonna be okay. 
And it would be, and I heard it so many times that it made me feel like, well, is it wrong to be sad? Is it wrong to be disappointed? Is it wrong to process? And it's actually dangerous to not process. See, often women are more in tune with this and husbands find it hard when a wife will say, I want to talk about stuff, but what they don't want is that they don't want a solution. And we just want to solve their problem. But what they're more intuitive, oh, there goes my glasses. What they're more intuitively with is the fact that they understand I've got some stuff I need to process. Because if I process it, I'll be okay. Whereas men are often the ones that, yeah, whatever happens, we'll just keep charging. We'll just keep doing it. We'll just fight another battle. And what happens often in men in 40s and 50s is often men will fall apart and do stupid stuff. And really it's a sign of they just never processed. All the disappointment, all the defeats, all the hardships. And eventually in this very dark time, last three, four months, eventually I actually went and saw someone, saw a professional. I started to sit down and just talk about all the things that we're going through. And one of the things that came up was that when I was 15, I took an acid trip and I overdosed and I was tormented by demons for three hours. I came out of that with what psychologists would call drug-induced psychosis, where from 15 to 23, I had an open door of the devil speaking directly to me through the television, through the radio and directly in my mind. And every day the message was, no one loves you, no one likes you, no one wants you. The message was, he convinced me, I know this is crazy, but he convinced me that he was God controlling all things and that he would torment me here on earth and then eventually he would take me to hell and torment me for the whole of eternity. And even seeing this professional, it was the first time that I realised that actually what I went through for eight years was like a form of major abuse. It was like I had a bully that abused me in a brutal way for eight years. And I radically got saved and God just kept doing miracle after miracle after miracle and changing lives and everything we touched turned to God. But, but I'd never processed where this fear of abandonment came, that rejection came from. And when I spoke to this professional for the first time where everyone else is, and not everyone, because there's a lot of people that, that journeyed with me, but a lot of well-meaning, it's, oh, it's going to be okay. God's going to do it. You're going to blah, blah, blah. When I spoke to this professional, he's a Christian, it's the first time I realised, hang on, what I've gone through is actually pretty major. And I need to be able to process. And it actually changed my dialogue with God because instead of trying to appear with God, saying everything's going to be okay and I'm going to believe and you're going to do a miracle, for the first time I was actually able to say in front of God, God, I'm angry. I'm angry at you. Let me tell you, God's big enough to handle your mess. He's not insecure that now He's freaked out. But as I let that true stuff come out, God, I'm angry, I'm disappointed. God, You knew this was gonna happen. You let me believe for four years that we're on this path to this. And as I got real and did this, I started to weep and cry and healing started to come to my heart. And then after the junk comes out, then I align with God, but I know you're still in control. I know you've still got a plan for my future. Same with the whole thing of this abandonment. When I went through that eight year period, I was able to get real. God, where were you when I was that 15 year old boy being tormented? God, I feel like you left me. And if I be honest, God, I feel like you might abandon me one day when I die. And as I say those things, tears start to come.
But then again, I align my thoughts to, but I know there's a, a room that You've prepared for me in the Kingdom. God, I know that You'll never leave me nor forsake me. Sometimes there's this tension in faith where we don't allow people to process, which is actually dangerous. And the Psalms are full of this exact same thing. A lot of us faith people would have rebuked David for a lot of things that he said. Because they started off with negativity. I'm done, I'm finished, it's all over. And that was just him being real and processing the pain. But then every time he would align himself back to, but you're gonna give me victory. You're still in charge. You're gonna make a way. And sometimes if you're gonna become good in relationship and and see your life enlarged and see your life become renowned, then you've gotta get good with the people in relationship with understanding and giving them grace to process. In other words, Honey, I'm with you when you're on top of the mountain, but I'm also with you when you're walking through the valley. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be cheering. I understand that when you go through the valley, there's going to be some messy stuff. There's going to be some stuff that doesn't fit in our Christian faith box. And you're going to say some things that you maybe shouldn't say and act in some ways you shouldn't act. But I just recognise that you're in the valley and God's doing some stuff in the valley so that you can get to the next mountain. One more thing on that and then I'll go to the last point. I'll do the last point in one minute. This is gonna mess some people up, what I'm about to, and I don't have time to do the whole chapter, but Judges 20 tells a story about the Israelites and they wanna fight the Benjamites because they did something bad. And they inquire of the Lord. They go to God, they inquire and they ask Him, they say, God, should we go fight them? God says, yes, go fight them. That's the will of God, yeah? They asked, He said, go will of God. They went and fought and 20,000 of their men were killed. They got whooped. They had to go back home and look wives in the eyes and say, your husband's not coming back. Look little boys and dad's not coming home. And so from that little bit of passage, the only thing I conclude is it was the will of God for them to lose. Before you get angry at me, wait till I finish. Then again, they say, they inquire again, God, should we fight? Yes, go fight. 18,000 more men killed. They come home again, they're mourning. I have to assume it was the will of God for them to lose. Because it was the will of God. They asked, He said, go. They did the right thing. The third time they said, God, should we go fight? He says, yes, and you're gonna win. And then if you look at that story in Judges 20, because of what they learned the first two times, they now routed the enemy a different way. And because of what they learned and how they were defeated in the first two times, they set a trap for the enemy. So the enemy thought they won again, but then they, they ambushed them and they defeated the whole army of the Benjamites. See, we get messed up with thinking that it was the will of God to lose, or in other words, the will of God to be in a valley season. And that's because we only see the finite, the now of what's going on. But God, when He knows it was the will of God to lose, He knew that He was letting you lose here and lose here because I'm taking you somewhere where you're gonna have a victory like you've never had before. You're gonna win in such an incredible way. And as Christians and friends, 
We need to be okay that my friend, he's just in the valley. He's just going through the process. Then the last thing, the last thing is number three, the two older brothers, they covered weakness. They covered weakness. Well, one so-called friend, a son, he exposed. Look at his flaw. Look at her weakness. But two sons said, you know what? If we're gonna do relationship properly, if we're gonna have a successful marriage, friendship, there's just gonna have to be moments where I choose not to look. And I'm gonna cover. I'm gonna cover you with I'm gonna cover you with love. And it's how you get through the valley. When you have people that will cover your sin, cover your weakness. 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. And so really, if you wanna see the picture of these two older boys and they're holding a, a sheet and they're literally covering dad's weakness and nakedness, that is a picture of love. And the Bible says that God is love. And the way that we're, our, our multitude of sins are covered is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's a picture of the two older sons saying, you know what? For our relationship to go to where it needs to, there's gonna be moments where I just cover you with the blood of Jesus. I can see your weakness, but I'm choosing to not look. Notice how the boys, they kept their heads outward. In other words, I'm not gonna focus on Dad's weakness. I'm gonna keep seeing him as the man of God he is. I remember when he built that boat. I remember when he heard from God and everyone laughed at him. I remember where it started to rain and it had never rained before. That's how I'm gonna see Dad. I'm gonna cover him with, with love. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.